0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear how traumatic experiences like last month's mass shooting in Boulder can affect police officers' mental health and morale.
1: A situation like this brings us together, which was evident in the days afterwards, the weeks afterwards.
2: We'll also hear about an organization that helps military veterans work with their trauma through creative arts.
0: That and more coming up.
2: You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
0: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Prosecutors have filed 43 additional charges against the man charged with killing 10 people at a Boulder King Superstore last month. That includes 10 counts of carrying prohibited large-capacity magazines. Speaking about the magazines, Boulder District Attorney Michael Doherty says at this point there isn't a reason to believe they were sold illegally.
3: In other words, if there was a store or dealer that sold the magazines illegally, <clears throat> charges could be filed and would be filed against that store or individual. We don't have any indication at this point, but it's still in the early stages of the investigation, and we're still looking into that.
2: The court document outlining the new charges also lists 19 new people, including 11 law enforcement officers, that the defendant is accused of attempting to kill during the attack. His defense lawyer says he suffers from mental illness.
0: And as the legal and legislative responses press ahead, we've been curious about how the incident and the death of police officer Eric Talley has been affecting the law enforcement community in Colorado.
2: Stephen Schultz is the president of the Colorado Fraternal Order of Police and a sergeant with the Longmont Police Department. He joins us now to discuss the mental health impacts of a job that can result in experiencing many traumatic events. Stephen, welcome to Colorado Edition.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: What has been the reaction within the Colorado law enforcement community to losing Officer Talley and and what happened in Boulder? I imagine it's the kind of thing that could affect morale, but also maybe bring officers closer together.
1: You know, the loss of life, unfortunately, we lost nine civilians that day, and which was an absolute tragedy. But losing one of our own really hits home to the officers and the deputies, not only the ones that responded, but across the state. As far as what it did to morale... A situation like this brings us together, which was evident in the days afterwards, the weeks afterwards, Officer Tally's funeral, and honestly the outpouring of support from the community itself to support the family and our family in blue. It's a terrible tragedy, any loss of life, but this definitely brought our officers together.
2: When an event happens like this, there's a huge conversation about mental health in the community but also for police officers. What type of resources are available to law enforcement officers in the state who who struggle after an event like this or honestly just any other intense moment in the field?
1: So what we've worked on with the Colorado State Fraternal Order of Police, we saw a need probably around 2010. We watched the suicide rate of officers increasing and a normal person in their lifetime has about five traumatic events that they may be witness to. An officer in an average 20-year career could see upwards of 180 traumatic events. We see, we smell, we taste tragedy, and this stays with us. So what we recognized was we needed to help our officers. And there are several agencies in the state that have staff psychologists on board, but those are few and far between. So. What we worked on starting in about 2011 with our legislature was to recognize post-traumatic stress disorder as a recognized workman's comp claim. In 2017, we were able to finally get that bill passed. um, So our officers have an avenue to seek more help. What we then did at the Colorado State Lodge, which is located in Westminster, Colorado, is we have a group called Badge to Badge, which are mental health professionals run by Rebecca Allenson. Who is a retired police officer, and they have mental health services that we run full time out of our state lodge. We also have several facilities throughout the country that are vetted and recognized by the National Fraternal Order of Police Wellness Committee, and we can send officers to long-term therapy if they need that kind of therapy, Um, and then they can do follow-up with us at the state lodge, but. We also open it up to first responders. So as much as we want to take care of the officers, we also recognize that firemen, EMS, they see the same tragedies that we see on a daily basis. So we open up our facilities to them also.
2: In your career, have you seen the conversation about mental health in law enforcement change?
1: We've seen it change, and we've actually been on the forefront of that change. And what we're trying to change is the culture and the mindset that it's okay to see somebody and it's okay to open up and say that you may be hurting. Our philosophy is if we can get the officers in early before the onset of PTSD, which normally is about 30 days, we can help them on the front end and then their bag will not get full with all of the tragedies and they learn how to release those tragedies you know, through the mental health professionals that we work with. So that's our goal. We're seeing the change in the profession right now, especially in Colorado. And nationally, we've been on the forefront to change that culture and that mentality within the departments. But again, we offer those services at the state lodge. And that way, if somebody does run into an agency that may not look at it as we do, they know they can come and get the assistance that they need to not only help themselves, but help them their families and then keep them productive members of society and productive officers.
2: And are you seeing more people make use of these resources?
1: We truly have. In Longmont, uh, we actually have a program where our staff psychologist or psychiatrist they go in when they're in the field training program and they see them multiple times to grab a baseline. And then we have yearly check-ins. So this has been really important for the younger officers, older officers as myself, sometimes you're a little more resistant to go in and see them. But if we can change that culture on the front end, we won't have to really send people War workers comp for PTSD. They won't have to come and get the services as much because we're catching it on the front end. And we're starting to see that change in the agencies now, which is fantastic.
2: Stephen Schultz is the president of the Colorado Fraternal Order of Police and an officer with the Longmont Police Department. Thanks for speaking with us.
1: Thank you very much, Henry, and you guys have a great day.
0: Former Marine Richard Casper was injured in the Iraq War about 15 years ago. It left him with a brain injury and post traumatic stress, and for a long time, he was unable to speak about what happened. Then he found his voice through painting and songwriting.
2: Now he helps other vets do the same at a nonprofit called Creative Vets. He's a keynote speaker at the Partnerships for Veteran and Military Health Conference, a virtual event going on Friday and Saturday. He spoke with KUNC's military and veterans reporter Michael De from Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome, Richard. Thanks so much for having me.
3: You know, I want to start this by saying the conference is meant to welcome all veterans and their families and to connect them with resources and ideas. What message are you going to bring?
4: I was just so excited to be asked to speak at this event because it very much tackles everything I've been trying to say my whole life when I, when I got out of the Marine Corps and how art and, and music changed and saved my life. And how important this is to other veterans to understand that art is an option. I'm going to be talking about that transition that happens from a warrior brain to an artist brain. You're the founder of Creative Vets. I'm the co-founder and executive director.
3: I want to talk a little bit more about that. But first, do you mind sharing a little bit of your own journey? I know you were injured while serving in Iraq.
4: Yeah, and uh, I joined the Marine Corps in 2003. Uh, Super gung-ho. I've spent about two weeks after high school. (laughs) I went straight into the Marine Corps infantry. Wanted to go over make a difference. Um, Ended up being in a specialty job. I ended up guarding the President of the United States at Camp David, which was awesome, but is not what was intended. I had about 18 months left on my contract. They asked me if I wanted to stay up there. And I was like, you know, I love being a part of this opportunity, but I cannot serve in the Marine Corps without serving overseas. So just send me to the next people who are deploying. Um, When I finally made it to that deployment to Fallujah, Iraq, within the first four months, my Humvee was hit four separate times by IEDs, which left me with a left traumatic brain injury. And my buddy was shot and killed beside me.
3: Do you still struggle with post-traumatic stress as a result of your injuries?
4: Not near as much. So when I came home, it was horrible. I had to do one-on-one speeches with my speech teacher in college because my anxieties were so bad. Uh, I had I had migraines I had I still get migraines but not near as se- severe. Um, but I couldn't speak to people. I had anxieties, I couldn't go to job interviews. But the route I took with in the college was I started studying art and over four years of doing art music schooling, I ended up being almost 100% better. And so now I do still struggle a little bit, but I'm always keeping ahead of it. as, as long as I stay active and I keep creating, I would not be here in my position now if it wasn't for the arts.
3: There's this quote from you in the press materials ahead of the conference, and I want to read it. You say, I had a hard time putting my feelings into words. I didn't feel comfortable telling anyone my problems. I found a way to talk about it without talking about it. So tell me how you
4: talk about your problems without talking. So in the art world, when it comes to conceptual symbolism, that type of art, you colors say, say things, and so do symbols and so do patterns. And so one of the very first pieces I ever did was I, I was able to infuse red into a spot where green typically would be. So the background of this image I was drawing was grass. So you think, you know, that's green. And so I just did everything red. So when I put this piece up for people to talk about, it just so happened to be a piece about my gunner who was shot and killed. Now, I never told anybody that they, they could see a headstone in the image. But because the grass was red, each student took their time telling me, hey, I think you put red in this piece because you were there when your buddy died and you saw his blood. Or I think you put red in this piece because you're angry that he died. So even though I never told them the situation, they were telling me all the things I was trying to say. So that's what I mean by you could tell your story without telling it, because we teach veterans how to put symbolism and colors into their artwork, or even hide stuff in songs so they never have to say those words. How does that help you? It's baby steps into actually telling your story because our problem as veterans is we don't think anybody can understand us. So the moment those students started saying these things about what that color meant to them, and it felt the same to me, For a split second, I felt connected almost like if we were veterans together. And so I was able to start telling them little bits and little bits here and there. As I continued to do art and keep writing songs, I noticed I started telling more civilians than I ever have about my experiences in war. Those are usually reserved just for combat vets. So it's not about always keeping the story to yourself, but it's about the process of baby stepping out of it because you can't just go from... Hey, I'm not going to tell anybody to I'm telling the world without a few steps in between. And so that's where we come in is, is that first, First baby step, which is talking about it.
3: And your program, one track flies veterans to Nashville where they can work with songwriters. Uh, There's another track that allows vets to immerse themselves and study for three weeks at one of the best art schools. So you're sending people all around
4: the country. They're going to Chicago. They're going to Nashville. That was the one thing when we first started. I said, you know, suicide doesn't have a geolocation feature. And, you know, Nashville, we have some of the best songwriters in the world. I don't want just Nashville veterans to be able to embrace that. I want to be able to fly in veterans from Hawaii and from Alaska and from Colorado and Montana who don't have access to this over anybody else, because I want everyone to be able to heal at the same rate. And they don't have to have any background in arts and songwriting. It's actually preferred because we're trying to teach them a new skill, some other way to cope and to talk about what they're going through.
3: Thanks so much, Richard, for taking the time out.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: That was KUNC's Michael DeIuana speaking with Richard Casper, a veteran and executive director of Creative Vets, a nonprofit that helps veterans find their voice through creating art and music. The Virtual Partnerships for Veteran and Military Health Conference is open to service members, veterans, their families, friends, and those who care for them. There is a fee, but financial assistance is available. You can find out more on our website, KUNC.org.
2: And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC
3: spring is here, which means it's time to get out of the house and do some exploring. Why not learn a new language while you're at it? When you join KUNC as a member at a special discounted level of $10 a month, you'll receive a one-year subscription to Babbel, the online language learning software. This discounted level is only available before the first day of the spring membership drive, which is coming up on April 26th. So don't miss out. Join today at
2: KUNC.org. Welcome back. This is KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
0: And I'm Erin O'Toole. As of April 22nd, more than 2.4 million Coloradans have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. That includes 1.5 million people who are now fully immunized.
2: White people make up 70% of those vaccinated and are still receiving the vaccine at disproportionately higher rates than people of color. Hispanic Coloradans have received just 8.6% of all vaccines, despite being 22% of the population. Black Coloradans make up
0: 4% of the population, but have received 2.5%. And Coloradans are getting their vaccines in all kinds of places, pharmacies, grocery stores, mass vaccination sites, and now in mobile vaccine clinics making their way through rural communities. Here to tell us more about these mobile clinics and how vaccination is going in rural areas is Governor Jared Polis. Governor Polis, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about these mobile vaccine clinics? How are these outfitted? And um, how many people can they vaccinate at one time?
5: We have two buses that are going around the state in hard to reach communities because not every Coloradan can get in a car and go to the ranch or to dig sporting goods or has access to their local pharmacy or knows how to set up an appointment online. And that's why we're trying to fill in that gap with our two um, buses, each of which can do 500 vaccines a day. And they've been traveling across northeastern Colorado, southern Colorado, really being able to serve communities that are under-vaccinated and, and need help with access.
0: These mobile vaccine clinics just launched earlier this month. What has been the response so far?
5: It's been great. I, I was able to kick off one in Eaton, Colorado, the other near Pueblo. It's really been great to see people line up in their community. It was in the parking lot of a church and, and just being able to you know literally walk around the corner to the church they go to every Sunday made it very convenient for them to get vaccinated.
0: Well, I want to ask about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because, uh, you know, before that was put on, on pause, you'd said that one of the priorities of these mobile clinics would be distributing a lot of the state's supply uh, because it is a one-dose vaccine, one and done. Um, it would make it more convenient for people in these rural areas. How has the federal pause impacted the mobile vaccine program here in Colorado?
5: Well, it's certainly been unfortunate. We can't wait till we get uh, we need all the weapons in our arsenal to defeat this virus. And I I think Johnson and Johnson will likely be back within a week or so. But uh, for now, we have been able to uh, switch those over to do the two dose regime. Uh, and, and yes, that adds a level of complexity because, of course, the bus has to return to the exact same spot, you know, 21, 28 days later. We, we can do that. We are doing that. But it effectively halves the ability of those mobile clinics to be able to deliver vaccines. So if people are interested in finding out where the, the buses are, they can go to boxcarvax.com. Slash Colorado dash vaccines. That's boxcarvax.com slash Colorado dash vaccines. And we, we, we put those schedules out about a week in advance.
0: Well, I want to ask about some of the challenges the state may face in vaccinating rural residents. There was a recent story in the Atlantic uh, detailing how public health experts are worried about low rates in rural areas, maybe creating little islands where the virus could remain even after the pandemic has ebbed elsewhere. Are you concerned about this happening in Colorado?
5: Yes, there are um, healthcare deserts in this state, places where there's not access to a nearby hospital without a drive of an hour or two. There might not be a pharmacy in town that offers it. And uh, while there may be plenty of people there that are willing to get the vaccine, there's a smaller number that's ambitious enough to drive two hours each way to do so. So uh, you really have to reach not the vaccine reluctant, but the vaccine hesitant or the vaccine lazy. They'll get it when it's available, when it's easy. They're not going to spend half a day doing it. I know some Coloradans have and did and got vaccinated months ago. Now it's getting easier, right? Uh, The ranch in Loveland, you you you, you no longer need an appointment. You can show up Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and you can simply get your shot. Now, you know, at five or six p.m. when people get off work, there may be a you know 40-minute wait or half-hour wait, but during most of the day, you'll be in and out in 20 minutes or so at the ranch and it's free. And you can book ahead of time if you want to make sure that they have that slot for you and there's no wait, but you can actually show up anytime when you're just passing by and Go be in and out real quickly, but not everybody can drive and get to the ranch or lives within you know an hour of a site like that, and that's why we have these mobile stations and are working hard on helping to make it more available in rural Colorado and in communities of color that might not have access.
0: I want to ask you this because I know you've throughout the pandemic uh, have said that your response is really driven by data and guided by advice from public health experts, and right now it just the pandemic feels like a balancing act. We have lots of people getting vaccinated. At the same time, cases have been rising again as many communities start to reopen and relax mask mandates and things like that. How comfortable are you with where Colorado is right now?
5: We're at this point where we have uh, you know, more than a third of our adult populations protected, and we have about half of the adult population that's had at least one vaccine. And and for people who are fully protected, meaning you've had the two vaccines and, and two weeks after that or the one Johnson & Johnson and then two weeks after that, Absolutely. You don't need to be as cautious about wearing masks, seeing others, all of those things. But if you haven't yet been vaccinated or you've gotten, you know, one of the two and are waiting, now's the time really to double down on keeping yourself safe and prevent social gatherings with others and, and wear a mask when you're out. And then as soon as you're protected, um, you absolutely can can ease up and, and life returns to normal.
0: Governor Jared Polis, thank you so very much for talking with us.
2: Thank you. In late March, Rutgers University in New Jersey became the first college in the U.S. to require all students to receive COVID-19 vaccinations before returning to campus. And though other colleges and universities have announced their own vaccine requirements, not all schools are on board. Some have taken the position that because the vaccine is authorized only for emergency use, it cannot be mandated.
0: In early April, Fort Lewis College in Durango decided it can, becoming the first Colorado school to announce a vaccine requirement for all students returning next fall. And earlier this week, the University of Denver became the second to issue a mandate. Tom Stridicus is the president of Fort Lewis College, and he joins us now to tell us more about the decision they reached and why. Tom, welcome to Colorado Edition.
6: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So how did you and, and other top officials at the school come to this decision to mandate the vaccine for all students?
6: Well, this story really begins in May and, and June of last year when we made the decision to be in-person on campus for our classes. Fort Lewis College over the last year has run about 70% of its courses in person. And campus is open. The union is open, dining is open, the gymnasium is open, et cetera. But the vaccine really presents the best opportunity to get back to everything that we love. And and that's a hands-on inclusive personalized learning environment that really makes Fort Lewis what it is. And we also take the health of our community seriously. Many of the communities that we serve have been some of the hardest hit. Fort Lewis College serves a large Native American population. It's an important part of our mission. Uh, Many of those students, for example, are from the Navajo Nation. and, And we know that those were some of the hardest hit communities when it came to the pandemic. Our our local Colorado tribes, uh, the Southern Ute and the Ute Mountain Ute, have already been incredible partners in providing access to the vaccine for our faculty and staff and many of our students who are eligible through Indian Health Services. So we see it as vitally important to have our students vaccinated.
0: How are you ensuring that all students will get the vaccine? And are you taking steps to help get them to the clinics and then verify that they've been fully vaccinated?
6: The idea of adding... uh, the COVID vaccine to our existing requirement, so it's important to, to realize that we also require the MMR vaccine, really is about education. All through the year, we've required masks on campus. We've had testing. You know, we've, we've not stressed the, okay, this is mandatory and we're, we're coming after you in a compliance regime. This is really an opportunity to educate our students. We've hosted clinics on campus already. We'll continue to do that through the summer. We will host clinics in the fall when students return. And we will use various channels. Social media is probably our best channel to really explain to people why this is important.
0: I want to come back to the emergency use authorization that the vaccines are approved for use under. While some schools, like Fort Lewis, have mandated vaccines for all students, other colleges and universities have stated that they can't mandate the vaccine because it's available through this particular authorization. Even legal scholars are divided on this issue. What do you think of this argument?
6: Well, every campus has to think through what's best for their own community. Uh, and, And that's really what we did at Fort Lewis. There is nothing uh, in state or federal law that prohibits the requirement of a vaccine that has EUA approval. Colleges' rights to require vaccines have been upheld for nearly a century, and, and the UAE statute doesn't preclude a public institution of higher ed from taking this action. So we really asked ourselves two fundamental questions. One, do we think students will have access to the vaccine? And then, two, is this really the next step in protecting our campus and returning to normal? And the answer to both of those questions was yes.
0: When students do return to campus next fall, what do you imagine it will look like? Will they still be wearing masks and be practicing social distancing, or do you think it'll look a little more like pre pandemic times?
6: I can imagine a world where we no longer require masks outside, where students who potentially face an exposure aren't subject to quarantine. Those students who uh, have been vaccinated and potentially have been exposed wouldn't have to participate in our mandatory testing program. I think this will just ease that burden and weight that has come from COVID with the caveat that everything is always subject to change.
0: You were the first, and for a little while, the only college or university in Colorado to announce a COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Later in April, the University of Denver announced that all undergrad students will be required to receive the vaccine before they return to campus in the fall. Now that there are two schools in Colorado with this mandate, do you expect other schools will will soon follow suit?
6: I think everyone has to do what they feel is right for their community. For our community, our faculty and staff worked so hard to keep our campus safe, to stay open, to have a quality experience for our students, that this is the next logical step in our progression towards a return to normalcy. So I think every college president is, is looking at this issue and, and making a decision about what they feel is right for the nature of their community.
0: Tom Stratakis is the president of Fort Lewis College in Durango. Thank you so much for talking with us today.
6: Thank you, I really appreciate the time and come down and visit us in lovely Durango, Colorado.
2: That's our show for today. On the next Colorado Edition, we talk with a police and public safety psychologist about what recovery looks like for survivors and first responders of mass shootings. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
0: And I'm Aaron O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening.
2: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.